As you might imagine, I spend a fair amount of time explaining ethical culture to other people, (laughs) kind of a major part of my job description. And a lot of times, I'm actually explaining it to people in an interfaith setting, not necessarily newcomers who come here, who've maybe checked out the website or have some sense of who we are or what they might be looking for, but to folks that don't know anything at all about ethical culture and, and have an interest only because I happen to be there in an interfaith setting with them and they're trying to figure out exactly what I am, what we do here. I actually find it's it's pretty easy to talk about ethical culture in that sort of setting and I I offer to you what I tend to say, which is that ethical culture is a a religious and philosophical tradition that's based on the idea that ethics is at the heart of all religious traditions and that how we are in the world, how we behave, is more important than what we believe. And so we focus on that idea of ethics and ethics in relationship to other. So that's a nice, quick, pat answer, and it works pretty well in the interfaith world. It gets a little trickier, though, if I start talking about being a humanist or about ethical culture within the humanist tradition and what that means. I think for folks sometimes in the interfaith sphere or just out kind of in the world beyond our, um, our borders, beyond our walls, the idea of humanism sounds confusing, even perhaps like an idolatry of sorts. It's certainly used as a slur sometimes in in discourse, you know, those those secular humanists that are ruining America or whatever it is that we're doing. Frankly, I'm not quite sure we're that organized, but... um. (laughs) But as we talk about, about humanism and what it means, I often hear from folks, well, what does that mean, humanism? Do you worship humans? Is that what you're all about? I have a colleague who says that saying that humanism worships humanisms is the same thing as saying that Anglicans worship angles. It doesn't really make any sense. You're just like using language in a weird way. But I can understand where that confusion comes from. Our art, the art that we, that we tend to love and talk about is human in nature, usually. We left up some of the beautiful decorations from our community dinner last night, these silhouettes that Molly Biting and Susan Runner made. And, and they're silhouettes of people, of course, of humans, different kinds of humans. Our heroes, our prophets, are often human, or maybe always so, in ethical culture and in humanism more broadly. We place responsibility for the world firmly in human hands. We think it's, it's us that has the potential to save ourselves and the world around us. Even our little symbol, both the humanist one and the ethical culture one too, is a, a human. The little, the ethical guy, people sometimes call him. I, I sort of resist that. I think it could be the ethical person. Might be nice. But if you don't know, it comes from that Leonardo da Vinci, um, uh, drawing, you know, Leonardo da Vinci was one of the great early humanists, not a not a non-Christian humanist. He was within the Christian tradition, but a, but the one of the first, and a particularly in that painting, you know, you, you know the draw. It's not a painting, the drawing of the guy in the circle, right? So what was so amazing about that drawing was um, that it was the measurement of the world in human terms, the span of a person's arms, the width 
of legs. So you can understand, perhaps, how we get that reputation. Humanism is about worshiping humans. A couple of weeks ago when we started our exploration of the sacred, I explored the humanist manifesto, the seventh, uh, the seventh principle there, I think it was. And I was looking this time at the eighth and ninth, again, to see where that criticism comes from. The humanist manifesto, as you might know, was written in 1933. It was really the first official articulation of religious humanism as a thing, And it was signed by professors and uh, Unitarian Universalist ministers, or Unitarian ministers at the time, and Universalist ministers. They hadn't joined up yet. And um, no ethical culture leaders, because Felix Adler, the founder of ethical culture, actually didn't support the Humanist Manifesto. But I saw today, uh, as I was looking at the signers again, that the, the... the head of the ethical culture schools signed it. So he must have been far enough removed to get away with it. Anyway, the Humanist Manifesto kind of talked about religious humanism. And and the eighth kind of tenet in there is religious humanism considers the complete realization of human personality to be the end of man's life. Sorry, well, correct it. And seeks its development and fulfillment in the here and now. This is the explanation of the humanist's social passion. And then ninth, in the place of the old attitudes involved in worship and prayer, the humanist finds his religious emotions expressed in a heightened sense of personal life and in a cooperative effort to promote social well-being. In place of old attitudes involved in worship and prayer, the humanist finds his religious emotions expressed in a heightened sense of personal life. I think, first of all, you can sort of hear that 1930s, very rationalist language in there. I'm not sure anybody really wrote, like, a great song to the heightened sense of personal life, you know? (laughs) Soaring, soaring melody. But I think, too, again, you see that focus on the individual human, a heightened sense of personal life fulfilling ourselves, how much ourselves can we be. You see that in early progressive religion in general, before humanism really became a a thing the way we know it today, in the 19th century, William Ellery Channing, who is a Unitarian minister and really kind of the founder of Unitarianism, talked about, um, about people growing in likeness to God. His heresy was the rejection of original sin, the idea that we're not born fallen and sinful, but instead we're born with the capacity for goodness, the potential for goodness. But that phrase he used, growing in likeness to God, you can see the beginning of that criticism of humanism, the likeness of God. And then James Freeman Clark, a a Unitarian minister in the 19th century, a humanist Unitarian minister, famously talked about the onward and upward progress of humanity. I've quoted that before here. He shared that before World War II, before the genocide of that time. And there were understandable responses to that idea that humanity was indeed progressing onward and upward doesn't always look that way, right? Ralph Waldo Emerson, a great transcendentalist in the 19th century, believed in the divine spark within each person. And that was an idea that Felix Adler, the founder of ethical culture, really believed in as well and and brought up. We'll return to that idea. It's sort of an intense version of the inherent worth of every person, the divine spark 
within each of us. Emerson also said something, a a reading I've liked for some time. A person will worship something, have no doubt about that. We may think our tribute is paid in secret in the dark recesses of our hearts, but it will come out. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming. A person will worship something. That reading is often used, actually, in a sort of anti-materialism sense, right? If what you are worshiping is money or the acquisition of goods, if what you're worshiping is a, a certain lifestyle or a or a a certain way of being that is about kind of greed or avarice. Be careful what we worship, for what we worship we become. But I think about it, too, in this context, in that criticism of humanism that we are worshiping ourselves. And I wonder what keeps us from that idolatry. There are a few things, I think, that help The first is the importance of humility. Humility is not a word often associated with ethical culture or with humanism or really with progressive religion. When we did away with original sin, when we said we are not fallen but instead have the capacity for goodness, many of us also rejected the idea that pride is wrong. You know that saying, pride goeth before a fall? My mother said that to me, I think maybe like weekly in my childhood. (laughs) And I actually say it. I said it to someone last night. I don't even remember. It was somebody here at our community dinner last night. Someone was telling me how proud they were of something. And then, and then it, no, but it had already gone bad. It was, I wasn't jinxing them. (laughs) It had already gone bad. And so I was just saying, oh yeah, pride goes before a fall. Anyway, so out there in the, in the sort of dominant Christian narrative is this understanding of pride as sinful, right? But I think when we reject that, what we forget is it's not pride in, in an accomplishment or, or pride in being kind that they're talking about, but the kind of pride that leaves no room for anything else, the kind of pride that just puffs us up so that there's no room for the other. M. Scott Peck put it this way, The person with a secular mentality, he thought, feels himself to be the center of the universe. Woe to us. (laughs) Woe to us if that is what we think. And he goes on, he's likely to suffer from a sense of meaninglessness and insignificance because he knows he's but one human among five billion others. Indeed, I think that sense of insignificance, that sense of humility in the world is one of the things that saves us from the idolatry of simply worshiping ourselves. Dan Schatz, who's a Unitarian Universalist humanist minister in Pennsylvania and a folk singer too, some of you might know him that way, wrote, I am a Unitarian Universalist humanist not because of my pride in human achievement or potential, but instead because of my acceptance of the need for humility in the face of human limitations. That's the response, of course, to the onward and upward progress forever, is an acknowledgement that that's not ever fully true, that we have limits, that we make mistakes. Next month we will explore the theme of imperfection and really delve into what that might mean for us. So humility, that's one. 
The second way that I see us avoiding that idolatry is by understanding our place in nature. It's not unrelated, right? When we have a sense of kind of our puffed up pride or our our sense of ourselves bigger than it really is, all we need to do is step into the woods or onto a mountaintop or in front of the ocean, and suddenly we see that we might be smaller than we had imagined. Bill Murray, who wrote an excellent book, Reason and Reverence, talks about a non-theistic faith, a perspective that he calls humanistic religious naturalism. He writes, like traditional religious humanism, it rejects the supernatural and maintains that there is only one reality, the natural universe. Traditional humanism, he goes on, though, has historically been too anthropocentric, whereas for humanistic religious naturalism, it is nature rather than humankind that is ultimate. The differences with traditional religious humanism may seem subtle, but they provide a foundation for a more open, less rationalistic, and more inclusive humanism that speaks to the heart and the soul, not just the intellect. It also, I think, provides the grounding for environmental stewardship as a key part of the humanist approach. Rather than seeing humans as the ultimate, it is humans in connection with nature, humans as part of the world around us, part of the universe that we inhabit. So that's the second way, our connection with the natural world, our understanding of our place within it. That leads nicely, I think, into the third, which is the concept of reverence and awe the importance of those experiences in the humanist life. Bill Murray, again, spoke about reverence. He said, The human ability to think critically and constructively has made possible our achievements and medical and technological advances, but it is only reverence, understood as feelings of respect and awe, that can save us from the hubris that would destroy all the good we have accomplished. As Paul Woodruff writes in his elegant little book, Reverence Renewing a Forgotten Virtue, reverence begins in a deep understanding of human limitations. Bill Murray says, Woodruff goes on to note that reverence keeps human beings from acting like gods. It is thus essential to our true humanity. They're all connected to each other, I think, the sense of humility that we experience in nature And then the feelings of reverence and awe, of wonder, if you will, that we find there as well. And of course, we find that sense of wonder, not just in in nature. I always think that's a funny dichotomy anyway, as though nature were only, you know, the trees, a wooded path, when really it's all of this. It's everything we build and created around us. But it brings me to that fourth thing, I think, that saves us from the idolatry of worshiping ourselves, and that's our connection to each other. You know, humanism is never about an individual human alone. It can't be, I think. It has to be about the whole human family, all of us together on this ship called Earth or 
even bigger, the ship called the galaxy, the universe. Kendall Gibbons, a great humanist thinker, writes, we come together because we are creatures who are fundamentally, physiologically incomplete. As much as our individuality defines us, we also need other people to make our limbic circuits function the way evolution has built us. To the core of our chemistry and our neural networks, we are a social species. So humility and naturalism, reverence and connection, all these antidotes to worshiping ourselves. Does that mean, though, that Emerson was wrong? Remember, he said, a person will worship something. Is that not true for us? Have we escaped it? Do we worship nothing? Certainly some folks would say that, I think. That idea of worship as bowing down or obedience to another, a supernatural deity. That's the sense of the word that we understand in common parlance and in the religious world. Worship, the word itself, comes from the Old English. Uh, I wish I could say it right, but I can't. But what it means is worth-shaping. The worth, the shaping of worth, worth-shaping or worth-affirming, worth-creating. It wasn't connected to a religious experience and a deity until 1300, actually. So it predated it by quite a bit. Now, I know you may be saying, well, Amanda, that's all well and good, but we don't actually speak Old English anymore. (laughs) I do wonder sometimes, you know, I like to take you all back to the etymology. You know, I like religion that that comes from the Latin to bind together, religare, to bind together again. That's what religion means. And then worship, well, that's really just shaping worth. Pretty soon we'll be speaking only in Latin and Old English, which might not be actually the most welcoming way. (laughs) I'm not suggesting a use of this word, a reclamation of it here. It's a particularly tender one for many people. And it does have a a meaning in American common parlance now. Well, I guess since 1300. Uh, (laughs) But I do want you to have a sense of where it comes from, of what it used to mean to people and what it means to some people still. Unitarian Universalists often use the word worship, and I think it behooves us to know that they've done some reclamation around it, that for them it means that worth shaping, not a bowing down or obedience. It's not our language, but it's nice to know what they mean, I think, when we're there. So if we are worth shaping worshiping, I wonder whether there is any kind of, of God within, that divine spark that Emerson talked about. Eric Fromm, one of the great humanists, said, only the person who has faith in himself is able to be faithful to others. Faith in himself. I have another etymology for you. You know, the word enthusiasm. This, I would like to say, was sent to me by a West member, so it's not just all me. (laughs) You guys also like etymology, see? Enthusiasm comes, I think, from the Greek originally, so that's good. We have Old English, Latin, and Greek. It's a great day at West. (laughs) Enthusiasm means the God within, 
God within, inspired by God or possessed by God. As I was doing the research on this, I discovered the Puritans actually had a really negative view of enthusiasm. <laughs> I guess maybe that's obvious. But, I, but they really saw it as possessed by God in an inappropriate way. You know, you were supposed to be possessed by God within really clear rules and strictures uh, within, uh, within Puritanism. But I think about that idea, about enthusiasm, the the divine spark that Emerson and Adler talked about, the God within. Walt Whitman in The Body Electric famously said, if anything is sacred, it is the human body. What do we do with that sense of sacredness about humanity? There's a Hafiz poem that I especially love. It gave me the title of this platform, actually. It's translated by Daniel Ladinsky, and my understanding of Ladinsky's translations is that there's some interpretation done as well. So I invite you to hear this as Hafiz through Ladinsky, not a strict translation of Hafiz's words. The poem is called, I Knew We Would Be Friends. As soon as you opened your mouth, And I heard your soft sounds. I knew we would be friends. The first time, dear pilgrim, I heard your laugh. I knew it would not take me long to turn you back into God. I love that poem. There's something about it. That speaks to me. It would not take me long to turn you back into God. This is my daughter's understanding of God, my older daughter, somewhere between her Jewish preschool, her ethical culture Sunday school, her religious mama, and her atheist father. She came up with this phrase, which she shared with me a few months ago. She was having one of those um, conversations on the playground, you know, where somebody told her that God was like a guy in the sky, and, you know, she said, no, it wasn't, and they had a fight. And um, <laughs> not a physical fight, because we don't raise them that way. But, um, but many of our children actually have had those experiences, and, and they have different ways to respond, depending on what they've heard at home and what, what they've heard in Sunday school, of course. And I asked my daughter what she said back and what she thought about it, Ethical culture parents tend to respond to questions with questions, you know. (laughs) Probably totally frustrating for our kids, but oh well. And she said, well, I just think, I just think God's inside everyone. That's all. I said, that sounds pretty good. Okay, (laughs) sure. Enthusiasm. God within. Last week, we hosted Don Montagna, the senior leader here, for 34 years before I came on board. And he talked about spirituality as one's animating spirit, the spirit that animates and brings life into our world. I liked that, and it seems somehow to me deeply connected to our affirmation of worth. That idea of, well, God's just in everyone. That idea of the divine spark within turning you back into God. 
It makes me think about the ethical culture affirmation of worth in every single person. Felix Adler didn't talk about seeing worth in everyone or having it proved to him. In fact, I'm not sure he always thought it was completely there, but he affirmed it. He chose to attribute it, whether he saw it or not. It was irrelevant what you had done. Still, he chose to affirm as worthy. And I find that so powerful, to affirm the worth of a person to see someone, I would say, as sacred, no matter what. It would not take me long to turn you back into God. I think about how we affirm the person who has hurt us, how we affirm the the prisoner sentenced, how we affirm the drug addict, how we affirm ourselves when we are these things, or any time. Somehow the affirmation of worth becomes yet more precious, yet more sacred. I think, too, in Felix Adler's writing, And particularly in that phrase we often repeat here, you see wrapped up so nicely one of those safeguards against just worshiping ourselves. We often talk here about the tagline in ethical culture, I guess it is, elicit the best in others and thereby in yourself. I find it so helpful, actually. I think about that all the time. It's really a convenient way to try to think about what the right thing is might be to do, elicit the best in others and thereby in yourself. When I think about that humanist manifesto, the eighth and ninth articles that we talked about, you know, and the idea, what was it, the the human, oh, someone help me out. Don't you remember what I said exactly? (laughs) Here we go. Um, The heightened sense of personal life. It really sings, doesn't it? No, I like it. It's fine. The heightened sense of personal life. I think Adler has given us the safeguard there that it's not just about the heightened sense of our own personal life. It can't be, right? It has to be in connection with others. It has to be part of the whole. People sometimes ask what Felix Adler thought about God, and I'll tell you the answer is kind of complicated, honestly. He wrote and worked for many years. He founded Ethical Culture in 1876, and he died in 1933, and he wrote and worked that entire time. And so he talked about a Godhead, a a sense of, of the divine spark, as Emerson did. And then he talked about the ethical manifold, A couple of weeks ago, I told you that um, I get my platform ideas sometimes, and I write them down. I jot them down on a little piece of paper and put it up on my bulletin board, and that that was a good way to get me to to talk about something, because you could write it down, and then I would think I had done it and speak about it later. And as I left that platform, somebody handed me a note (laughs) where they had written down something they wanted me to talk about. So here you go, Nora. Um, So... So the ethical manifold, right, it's this, um, it's not a car part, <laughs> which I think it sounds like. It's this, it's this really great 19th century Adlerian concept of, of the web of connection, really. 
the way that each of us are connected to another, and the way we cannot be fully ourselves without being connected to each other. That I can't be fully who I am. I can't bring out my own best without bringing out yours as well. So you sort of think about this web of connections that, that's laid over the reality that we see, right? This web that exists, these golden threads, that's the way I like to imagine it, that connects us each to the other. There's lots of debate among the leaders these days about whether Adler really thought there was a web of golden threads, or it was like a metaphor for a web of golden threads. Most of us think probably a metaphor, but I don't know about that. But regardless, the golden threads help, I think. Do we worship ourselves? Certainly not. That would truly be idolatry. But do we worship each other? If by worshiping we mean that old English shaping of worth, affirming it, then I might not be too quick to deny that accusation.